It's not often that we get three messages in a row on the same passage, but um, this is such an important passage. It kind of, I don't know if you've, uh, I won't even go there, I was going to make a Hollywood reference that none of you would get, but um, John chapter 1 is the rest of the book of John condensed into a tiny little um, I don't know, it's like a uranium or something. It's all, all packed in there, really, really tight. And as we go through the rest of the book of John, all of the concepts that are introduced in John chapter 1, especially the first 18 verses, are gradually uh, exposed, and it's like um, more and more levels of meaning opening up as we go through the rest of the book. So I wanted to take time just to introduce uh, John properly, and to anticipate some of the themes that are coming. So if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1, we're probably there already, John chapter 1. We're going to read again um, verses 1 through 18. And I think this will be the last time we'll focus especially on these verses. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I've got a title for this. And the title is, He Has Made Him Known. And that comes from the very last verse, verse 18. This is kind of something that John seems to like to do. He kind of likes to put his theme after what he's already talked about. We would say, well, we need to introduce that theme right away so that people know what we're talking about. John tends to uh, hold on to the best expression of his themes until later on and says, this is what I've been trying to say to you. So he does this in verse 18, where he says, um, and I'll just read that before we get into our text here. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's the theme of the first 18 verses, just as the theme of the whole book of John is found much, much later in John chapter 20, and I think it's verse 31. I didn't check this ahead of time. It says, but these things are written. This is why I wrote this book, John says. But these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then by believing you might have life in his name. That is the clearest expression of the purpose of the whole book of John. There is no better book to use in personal evangelism than the book of John. It was specifically written for that purpose. And you can pray that God will open people's hearts. We have some extra copies of the Gospel of John at the back. I would encourage you to take one. And if there's more in my office, if you need one, uh, it's this book is... if. If people will read it with a mind that desires to know God's truth, I believe it will have tremendous effect. So let's begin in our message and our, our reading. And the title for this, again, is He, that is Jesus, has made him known. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from John, sent from God, pardon me, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus being that only God. Now, I want to address this under some headings this morning, or this afternoon. And all of these headings have the word light in them, because I think the light is the most preeminent um, theme that carries through all of this. So we're first going to look at the light of creation in verses 3 to 5. Then we're going to look at the light of proclamation in verses 6 through 8 and verse 15. Then the light of incarnation. We uh, explored this in detail last week. We'll uh, do so again this week um, in verses 9 through 11 and verse 14. Then the light of regeneration. That's a really important theme all the way through the book of John. Regeneration in verses 12 and 13, and finally, the light of salvation in the rest of the verses, up to verse 18. Let's begin with the light of creation. Verses 3 through 5 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's certainly a parallel here with the first few verses of Genesis where God, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and the first thing that he created was light. He said, let there be light and there was light. Uh, there was light even before there was the sun. There was light even before there was vegetation. In other words, God, or, uh, the, or the vegetation was created um, even before the sun. So God created um, these things for his own purpose. And the theme of light, the theme of creation, also the theme of life is here. God created all life in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, everything that moves on the earth. And then he created man, different from all of the other life he created. He created man in his image. Male and in his likeness, male and female, he created them. Um, man 
has a special capacity to understand God and to relate to God that no other creature has. Man has that specific capacity. Christ, the agent and the initiator of all of creation, the one through whom all things were created, uh, was able to communicate his life to men, to people, to human beings, in a way that he did not communicate it to anyone else. Now, I want you to think a little bit just about the first phrase here. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. John states this two ways. Positively, he made everything. Negatively, there isn't a single thing that he didn't make. Now, listen to, to some scientific information I'm about to give you, because I think we can just let that phrase pass over us and not even really try to fathom what it means, because we lose touch of how very huge creation is, how very small we are, and how very complex God's creation is, and the fact that Jesus created all of it. Our sun is huge. It's so big that 1,300,000 of our Earths could fit inside it. That's statistic number one. It's small, however, compared to Antares, a star in our galaxy. Antares is so big that 64 of our suns could fit inside of it. But Antares is just a puny little star in the, rest, in the light of the rest of the... the the galaxy. Uh, Hercules is a big star. 110 million Antares could fit inside Hercules. So 110 million Antares, each big enough to hold 64 of our suns, which are big enough to hold 1,300,000 of our Earths, could fit into Hercules. By him, all things were made that have been made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, when we realize this, it's clear that on this planet, we are nothing more than little specks. But we tend to think we're pretty spectacular, don't we? Okay, now it's time to put down your telescope and pick up your microscope. And consider a drop of water, which is equally amazing. If you think back to junior high class, you'll, real, you'll recall that each molecule of water is composed of two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. I, I failed chemistry, so I had to check this. If you were able to enlarge each of the atoms in only a single drop of water to the size of a grain of sand, that's pretty small still, you would have enough sand, remember this is a single drop of water, you would have enough sand to make a slab of concrete one foot thick and a half mile high, stretching from San Francisco to New York City. So, God made every one of those patterns, and he did so with care. By him, all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the light of creation. 
This is the revelation of God in what he has made. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, What can be known of God is plain to them, that is, people in the world, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made, so that they are without excuse. Of course, you know the context of Romans chapter 1 is that God is angry at all of the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Now, even that light, even the light of creation, even to men who are under the wrath of God, that light is good. That light, if they were to recognize God as the source of that light, if they were to recognize that God has revealed himself in Christ and that, that they need to heed their conscience and repent and confess their sins, that light is still good light. There's no such thing as bad uh, light except for when we are de deceived. There's a couple other scripture verses that expand this sense of creation because... We can look at creation as a one-time event in history. Um, I think as, as Christians, we're not subscribing, subscribing to the theory that the earth is continually creating itself by, by chance random processes of evolution. Um, but not only did God create everything, but he holds it all together. And we know from John and from these other passages that I'm about to read that Christ is the one through whom God created. Listen to First Colossians 1 verses 15 to 17. He is the image, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So suns and atoms, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So there you have the reason for creation. And he is before all things. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, was, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was there before all things. And in him, all things hold together. If Jesus were to figuratively blink, or to drop the ball for just a second, everything would blow apart. If he were to remove his common grace from the world. We wonder sometimes what holds the world together. And some people naively think that the, the universe holds itself together. That the universe is an entity, is a, is a, it is God in itself. But scripture tells us different. God is the one that is making sure it doesn't all fly apart. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, when we read about light, as we do, and the light shines in the darkness in verse 5 here, remember that light in the Gospel of John rarely refers to the literal physical light. You know, the, 
I don't know how you'd even scientifically describe light, but the particles or the waves that emanate from a source. It's not talking about thing, something that helps to see with our eyes. It's very definitely spiritual light or at least light that is perceived with the mind. There's, I think there's both of those things. Now it says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He's given us light. He's given us understanding through his Son, in whom he, whom he anointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance. Radiance is like um, light that you can't even look at. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And here it goes again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's another way of saying he holds it all together. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's a theological truth. Not just the world, but the world in Greek, which is cosmos, which is universe or multiverse. He's got it all in his hands. He upholds it. How does he do it? By the word of his power. Now, we've already had Christ introduced as the Word in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now we are seeing that He is being introduced as the light, and it's the same. Yeah, Christ is the Word. Christ is, in Him was life, and that life is the light of men. Um, all right. So that is just a little introduction. That's their first understanding of life. Uh, of light. It is the light of creation. We are without excuse. God has clearly revealed himself in the creation of the world, in the life that we have. Because we have life, and we have life of a quality that we, in our hearts, know that there's a God. And by nature, we choose to suppress that knowledge by our wickedness. But we have that knowledge. We have that life that shows us that there's a creator and shows us that he is just and leaves us without excuse. I should mention that each of these lights that I'm going to talk about, they're, they're all referring to Jesus. And they add up to a case against anyone who would deny the light. And that case culminates in a verdict. We are absolutely accountable for the evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ, of the personality of Jesus Christ, and the mission and work of Jesus Christ that is given to us through his creation. And, secondly, through proclamation. That's found in verse 8 and verse 15. There's a little parenthesis. Uh, John returns to um, the concept of John the Baptist in verse 15. So I'll read verses 6 to 8 and then verse 15. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Okay, there's that major theme in John. That's the, sort of the first time it's stated that all might believe through him. Through who? The light. The light is him, just like the word is him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. We need to notice first here in verse 6 that John is identified immediately 
as a man. There was a man sent from God. Jesus is first identified as deity, as the word who was always with God and who then became flesh or uh, took on the nature of flesh. But John is purely and simply a man. Now he was a unique man. He had, his, his mother conceived him um, when, when she was very old and it was a miraculous event that she conceived him. Uh, there was angelic intervention to, to uh, give the news to, to John's parents. Um, and Jesus even said of John, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there was not one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying unequivocally, John the Baptist is the greatest man who had ever lived up until he said that. Listen to what he says next though. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you know that you have eternal life by believing in his name and in his work on the cross, you're greater than John the Baptist. Because John represented a different, um, different revelation, a different message than we have. John represented all of the law and all of the prophets pointing toward and preparing the way for Jesus Christ. We are on the other side of that. From his fullness we have all received. John was only beginning to, uh, to tap into that. I, I believe he's saved, but I believe that um, there is, for the new covenant believer, for the one who has received the Holy Spirit and the endowment of power from on high, uh, we are in a whole different realm altogether. Now, so he's a man. He's a very special man, but he's a man. And he knew very well that he was a man. He didn't put on airs comparing himself to God or trying to steal glory away from God. It says here that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. Now, if you were to walk in to a very dark room and someone were to light a match, would you need someone to bear witness about the light? Would you need someone to say, hey, there's a light. No, your head would swivel around unless you're blind. Your head would swivel and you'd see the light and you'd be drawn to it like a moth to the flame. John, the Baptist, literally has to come and bear witness to the light. He has to say, there's the light. Doesn't that say something about the people that he's bearing witness to? They have no conception. Even if they have eyes that or spiritual eyes that are supposed to be able to see the light, they can't see it. There's a reason they can't see it, but they're blind to it. That's why we bring the gospel. You know, Romans chapter 1 says, you know, the deity and the eternal Godhead of, of the Godhead of God is evident through creation, but people willingly suppress that even though they know God, 
They don't worship him or give him glory as God. So this is why there has to be a testimony sent. And that is the light of proclamation. He came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now this is John the Apostle describing John the Baptist. He says he wasn't the light. But John, John the Baptist would completely agree with that. In fact, listen to John's own words in Matthew uh, 3, verses 11 12. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his fleshing, threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John had a, a very intense message of repentance, and yet he is pointing and preparing the way for Jesus. He is bearing witness of the light, the light that can actually save. The light, the one that is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit, and that means life, spiritual life, and with fire, which means judgment. The Holy Spirit is coming to do both of those things. John, again, distinguishes himself as a secondary light, as not the true light, when he says, he must decrease, but I must or he must increase, but I must decrease, in John 3, verse 30. And Matthew 11, okay, I already read that one to you. But anyway, uh, John came as a witness. Now, I believe John was a light, but John was not the light. John was a secondary light. We know that the sun has light in itself. The sun is a source of light. The moon Though we see its light, it is not a source of light in itself. Everything that we see emanating from John, all the power that we hear coming from John the Baptist as he preaches, and the glory of God that we see, though it is veiled compared to the glory that is found in Jesus, it is reflected light. So he is not the light, he bears witness to the light, he reflects the light. Even, you could say that he emanates from, he is sent from the light. But he is not the source. I think it's pretty common that people who are, ought to really be bearing witness about the light, tend to think that they're the light. That without me, God can never get this message across. I am uniquely equipped to do this task. People need to listen to me. If I don't, if I'm not the head of this church or this organization, the whole thing is going to fall apart. God has a way of cutting people like that down to size. He does it all the time. And yet, Though John was great, and he was given the, this vote of confidence from Jesus, he's greater than any of those born of women. Greater is one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Alright, that's the light of proclamation. And 
in the time that the book of John was written, it was just after um, the Holy Spirit had, sent, had been sent and the church was beginning to um, expand throughout the world. Um, but John the Baptist, he represented, as I said, that old covenant, that unfulfilled, those unfulfilled promises. And he was looking and anticipating and waiting for Jesus. Well, now we have the light of incarnation. The word becoming flesh. And it's expressed in um, sort of abstract terms in verses 9 through 11 and then in concrete terms. In, chapter, in verse 14. Verses 9 through 11 it says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the incarnation is sort of implied there. He was in the world. Right? Doesn't yet give us the whole context of that, but he was in the world. Jesus visited this planet. He was in the world. And by the use of the past tense verb there, he is now not in this world. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. Came specifically to a specific group of people he, that he had in some way gathered to himself as his, and his own people did not receive him. Okay, so that's the non-specific, sort of general abstract way of talking about him becoming flesh. Then in verse 14, you have to skip a couple to get there, but it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Again, you have glory, the, the most common um, metaphor and accompaniment of glory is light. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, let's begin at verse 9 here. It says, the true light, which enlightens everyone. What is the true light? Well, uh, right away our minds, I say true, you say false. Yeah, we, we think of the opposite. Now, there may be many different, way, different um, ways of talking about uh, true light, and I think all of them are implied. And I have here um, something written by a fellow named J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop, I don't know, probably getting close to 100 years ago. Um, in his uh, notes on John, he has suggested that the adjective true has at least a fourfold reference, and meaning it can mean at least four different, there are four different shades to it. First, Christ is the true light as the undeceiving light. Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, it says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, But he appears as such only to deceive. Jesus also said, if that light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So we are so deceivable and so corrupt that we can actually call darkness light and believe that it's light. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So there is no mistaking Jesus is an undeceiving light. He also appears, uh, but Christ is the true light in contrast to all the false lights that are in the world. Second, 
as a true light, Christ is the real light. The real light in contrast to the dim and shaded light which was conveyed through the types and shadows of the Old Testament ritual. You know, you have the tabernacle. The more you study the Bible, you, the more you understand that Christ is prefigured in the tabernacle. Everything about him, or many attributes, are revealed there. You have the sacrifices, which... Uh, point to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement. You have the Day of Atonement, you have the Passover. All of these things point to Jesus. But Jesus is the real light. The other things are just, they're, they're, uh, they're markers, they're pointers, but they are not the same. Third, as a true light, Christ is the underived light, which means he doesn't come from something else. The Son the sun is a derived light. But if you look at the, the original story of creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God himself is the true light, and the secondary lights are just placed by him um, to draw attention to the true light. Christ's light is his own essential and underived glory. Fourth, as a true light, Christ is the supereminent light, which means, in contrast from all that is ordinary and common, he is a light that stands out above all other lights. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another of the stars, but all other lights pale before him who is the light, the true light. Now it says something interesting here. It says the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. We often talk about people dwelling in darkness and all humanity being lost and blind and dead in trespasses and sins. This says the true light which enlightens everyone. Now I don't believe we are yet talking about the light, at least in this sentence, about the light which um, ultimately saves. But a light, the light of revelation of the glory of God, everyone has that knowledge. There is no one who has an excuse. In fact, um, in Romans, um, two verses 12 to 16, I want you to hear this. It's not just the people who have a very specific proclamation, you know, the, the heritage of the prophets and of Moses and of the law, but also people who've never heard those things. We all have light. And do you know that when we are condemned, or when, the, when people are condemned at the judgment for, uh, for what they've done with the truth, those who have more light, those who have more truth, will suffer a greater punishment than those who have less truth. So listen to this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. We're talking Jews and Gentiles here. We're talking all of humanity. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, 
They are a law to themselves, even as though they, ought, they do not have a law. Even though they do not have a law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them, excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Jesus Christ. Now that's a lot of words, but all, is it, all it's saying is, everyone, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming, is continually coming into the world. God is always communicating with us whether we have direct revelation or not through, through his word. But that general light is different from what we see in verse 10. He was, he was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came. He said, here I am. He dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. That's what the word, the word means in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That was the light of incarnation. The word becoming flesh. The fact that God sent Jesus... Not only to appear as a man, but also to reveal the Father and to reveal how it is that a man or a woman comes to God without being judged um, unworthy. Through, the, through his own death and burial and resurrection and through faith in what Christ has done, mankind can be reconciled people can be reconciled to God. Now that's the light of the Incarnation. And the reason Jesus came into this world was to get to the next understanding of light that we see in this chapter, which is the light of regeneration. You could call it Genesis is called Genesis, which means beginnings. John could be called Regenesis, because John is all about being born again, about starting over again, about here is the, here is the physical creation of the world, in John, the spiritual creation of the new creature in Christ. John 12, the 1 verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the key thing there is, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Now that word, be to become, it literally means to come into existence. He gave the, to it. So when we believe in Jesus Christ, everyone who believes on his name, and we're talking savingly believes, not just believing in the historic person of Jesus, but believes in the name of Jesus, that he is indeed Savior, that he is indeed God's anointed one, that he has indeed accomplished God's purpose 
of redemption. Everyone who believes that has the right to become the Son of God, to become a child of God. Now, a lot of people make much of that having the right to become a child of God. They will say, yes, that means that everybody has the choice to believe in Jesus Christ, and if they exercise their right, if they exercise that right, then they become a child of God because they have freely chosen Him. We need to read the Bible in its context because the next verse completely destroys that understanding. It says, who were born not of blood, in other words, there's no heritage component here, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, I can't all of a sudden decide I want to be reborn any more than we could come into existence as an infant by saying we want to be born. Nor, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now people will argue over which comes first, belief or regeneration. I kind of think they occur in an instant, but I know this, they cannot be separated. <coughs> And neither happens by the will of man or the will of flesh. Regeneration, spiritual life, is given by God. There's other passages that talk about being born again. And they all emphasize this same thing. That regeneration is a work of God. It is not a cooperative work. It is the work of God. Having uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 24. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, that's the fruit of regeneration. Here's the root. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. Now the Word of God, it's the same as we've been talking about all the way through in John chapter 1. It's the Logos. Through Jesus, we're born again. Not of perishable seed, but through the living and abiding Word of God. James 1 verse 18 says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth, that we should be kind of a kind of first fruits of His creation. So Jesus is the light of regeneration. Um, when it says, but to all who did receive him, so going back to the previous verse, which is calling Jesus the light. So whoever receives the light, who believes in his name, has a right. In other words, he is given the certificate of adoption, saying, you're mine. And then, of course, the final adoption happens when we see him face to face. So Jesus is the light of regeneration. And finally, he is the light of salvation in verses 16 through 17. Verse 12 said, or 13 says, whoever, uh, hang on, I'll get my verse right here. Whoever received him, then he gave the right to become the children of God. Verse 16 says, and from his fullness, we have all received. 
from his fullness we have all received. Now, if you're reading, if you're following carefully, we understand that that we cannot refer to all of humanity. All of humanity has not received from Christ's fullness. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is a very specific, this is not talking about common grace, where we all have this general knowledge of God, we all have, you know, uh, the ability to, to uh, work and to live and to eat and so on. This is grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law never saved anyone, because it left men and women in their trespasses and sins. It left them falling short of the glory of God. And even when people were living under the law, those who were saved were recognizing their incapacity and inability to keep the law. They were recognizing that these sacrifices that they were to, instructed to, uh, to give to the Lord and um, the Day of Atonement and so forth, that they were completely dependent upon the grace of God. And they understood also that they were looking toward the Messiah, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That promise had been with them. And they understood that salvation was not of themselves, it was from God. But from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What does it mean to receive from his fullness? We know that all the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus. And now it says we are, from his fullness we have all received. Let me use another scripture to, to illustrate this. It's, it's from Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 19 and it's a uh, Sort of a, a benediction from the Apostle Paul. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. That comes from Christ. Strength and power. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ dwelling in us through faith, so that you may be rooted and grounded in love, and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is from the full this is receiving from the fullness of Christ that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Receiving this fullness, receiving grace and truth, comes only through Jesus Christ. This is how we are saved. We are saved by receiving His grace. Now, so when we talk about we have all received, it's making a distinction between people who are in Christ, people who believe in Him, and the world that rejects Christ. Now for, to conclude this, I'm going to jump ahead. Remember I said that John chapter 1 sort of telegraphs all the other themes. Well, John chapter 3 elaborates on the theme of uh, regeneration and salvation. 
So in conclusion, I'd like to say that Christ has made God known through the light of creation, through the light of proclamation, through the law and the prophets, through the light of incarnation as Jesus came and became a man. And he is the one true light, the light of salvation. And that evidence is overwhelming. And there's a court date coming. There's a judgment, a verdict that will be pronounced upon everyone who has any of this evidence. And I want to read a well-known passage in its context. You'll see how clearly the gospel is presented here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send in his, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now listen to this. And this is the judgment. Okay, we've heard the evidence. This is the judgment, or this is the verdict. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. I think it's interesting here. It doesn't say, you know, whoever does what is good comes to the light. It says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. The truth is that the light of Christ and the light of revelation and especially the light of incarnation and how he uh, brought to us the clear message of the gospel is it reveals our sin. It reveals everything in us that is against God. He who does what is true comes to the light. He who believes what the word says and the word says repent of your sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Believe in Him and you will be saved. Believe in Him and your sins will be washed away. When you do that, you're not afraid of being exposed anymore. You know very well that you've been exposed. And you know that everything good that you do without the intervention of Christ Without being born of God, it is worthless. But when Christ is in you, and you come into the light, you will see clearly that these good deeds that you now do are carried out in God. It is God working in you, both to will and to do according to His purpose. Well, that was... 
quite a ride through those 18 verses. But I hope that you can see that God has done everything imaginable to clearly reveal himself to us. Andrea, my daughter, she posted a little something on Facebook. It was called The Elephant Speaks. Maybe you've heard the parable of the blind man and the elephant. There's a bunch of blind men and they're gathering around an elephant and one man, he was kind of on the side, he says, ah, it's a wall. And the one's on his tail, he says, it's a rope. And I forget what the others are, but they all have their different perception of what this elephant is like. And then the analogy in the, in the traditional parable, it goes, it, it, it suggests that each of us can only understand a little aspect about God. But God is so mysterious. God is so above all. He is so incomprehensible that none of us can really understand what God is like. Now that makes a lot of sense to the rational mind, but it leaves out a very important point. If that parable were to hold true with reality, the elephant would speak and would say, I am an elephant. You, you're grabbing my tail. You, you've got my trunk. And he would declare who he is. God has, in Christ, Christ has made God we're without excuse. We know what we need to know about God. And the saving response to this knowledge is to trust that Jesus Christ has come into this world to save the sinners. Let's pray. Uh, let's pray and then we'll